Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Morning again, everyone, and welcome to worship here. Happy Fourth of July to all of you, and again, thank you for being here. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts right now would be pleasing and acceptable to you through Christ your Son, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. During my junior year of high school, a major storm with all sorts of significant hail swept through my hometown of Enid, Oklahoma. The Daily News and Eagle the next morning, the headline read, One Hail of a Night. It's really impressive small-town journalism there. But before the storm came through, everyone was rushing around trying to protect their cars. And our house at that time had a carport, and so I was moving our cars around trying to make room for our neighbors so that they could fit in there as well. And when I went out to my mother's car, I turned on the key, and the engine fired, but it didn't fully start. It felt and sounded like something was in the engine keeping it from, from turning over completely. And so I jumped out, opened up the, the hood of the car, and immediately when I did, fur floated out everywhere. Gray Persian cat hair, to be precise. Specifically, the gray Persian cat hair of my sister's cat named Tabitha. She'd apparently sensed that this storm was coming and decided that the car engine, particularly on one of the belts, was a safe place to hide from the storm. And so after I opened up the, the hood and, and choked on the fur and the smell, I heard a thud and Tabitha had fallen out beneath the engine. And so I, I crawled underneath there, seeing that she was still alive, slid her out across the concrete, and then picked her up and put her in the car because, now listen, I'm not a cat person. I did not love Tabitha, but I love my sister, and I knew that if the cat died this way at my hands, she would be far worse than this storm that was coming. And so I rushed her to the vet, and she lived. Miraculously, she lived. She never really meowed again, the hair. The hair on the back that the, the belt had burned off never grew back, but every time that my sister said something like, you tried to kill my cat, I could say, no, 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 I saved your cat. My dad wished that I hadn't saved the cat because he had to pay the vet bill. But now why do I tell you all of that? I tell you that because it was a massive storm. It utterly wrecked and ruined everything in my hometown, far, far more than just a cat. Uh, every roof in our, in, our, in our hometown was decimated. Every car that was left outside was ruined. Very few leaves were left on the trees. Entire trees were turned over. Homes flooded. We were without power for weeks. And everyone knew that this storm was approaching. 
Everyone knew it was coming, not just from the weather reports. You could sense it in the air. And that is very similar to the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, because up until now, we've been preaching through the book of Acts. We'll continue throughout the summer. Up until now, to the very end of chapter seven that Craig preached on last week, there has been a storm that's been growing, a storm of opposition, a storm of persecution. At the end of chapter seven, it breaks, it bursts with all its fury, and Stephen dies. And from here on out, just like Stephen, Christians will begin to die just like Jesus died with the very same prayer that he prayed on his lips at his death. Father, forgive them. That was last week. And it raises the question, how will we die? How, how will we die? Will we as Christians, those who follow after Jesus, will, will we die in faithfulness to his kingdom with similar prayers on our lips? It raises the question, is there anything in our life that we really believe to be worth dying for? worth living for and even dying for? Is there anything for which you would die? And who in their right mind would die for this gospel, quote unquote, that these Christians preach, this good news that's supposedly so good that death itself is not a deterrent? What is the nature of this gospel that's so good that it casts out the fear of death? So three points to try and answer that question this morning. What the gospel requires, number one, Number two, what it does. And number three, what it is. First of all, what the gospel requires. You may notice here that the first repeated word that we find in our text is the word scattered. It comes in verse one and also in verse four. And in the margin of my Bible, sometime in the past, I had written the question, by whom? Scattered by whom? By, by Saul and the persecution that he initiates following Stephen's death or by Jesus? Because Craig mentioned last week that in Acts chapter one, Jesus told his disciples all the way back at the very beginning of the book that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, which is the Jewish city, in Judea, the Jewish region, in Samaria, where Philip goes here at the very beginning of Acts eight, and even to the ends of the earth, which he effectively goes to at the end of chapter eight because he goes to an Ethiopian eunuch. So, who is the one doing the scattering here? Because it sounds very much like Acts chapter one is finally being fulfilled seven chapters later. So is it Jesus or is it Saul who's doing the scattering? And to scatter, you need to know it has at least two meanings in English. Number one, it means to separate. For example, at the Last Supper, both Matthew and Mark recount Jesus quoting from the Old Testament, quoting from the book of Zechariah, and telling his disciples on that night, the night of the Last Supper, that you will all fall away from me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Which of course happened that night. Jesus was arrested and, and all of the disciples scattered. They all, they all scattered in the sense of being separated like a flock of sheep when a, a wolf or a wild dog runs into their midst and they go off in all the different directions. Here in Acts 8, that seems like what may be happening because Stephen, a leader, a deacon in the church, he gets struck and the entire church scatters in all different directions. But Luke doesn't use that same word. That same word in Greek that Matthew and Mark use at the Last Supper, he doesn't use. He uses a different word. That it's translated the same in English, but it literally just means to throw. And it's, and it's a different image. It's still an agrarian image, but it's an image rather of farmers walking around throwing seeds, casting seeds about in order to scatter them, yes, but that they might be sowed. We're all probably familiar <clears throat> with the parable of the sower, which we preached on not too long ago. Both Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recount this, sower, this, this parable. 
And it begins, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed seeds. It's the exact same word that Luke uses here. It means to sow, because ultimately, this is what's happening. It's not that Saul is scattering all the disciples in the sense of separating them. It's, that's happening, but on a far deeper level, this is Jesus using Saul to throw or to cast or to send his disciples out into the world to be sown into the soil of these places and these people's lives that they never would have gone to otherwise. Different people, different cultures, different cities, new people, unexpected people, people that they would never want to be around with, Samaritans like Simon the magician or even the Ethiopian eunuch, a sexually damaged foreigner that Philip never would have gone to. Difficult people and unwanted people, but all people, all types of people. And notice this. Notice who it is that goes. Who is it that gets scattered out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria? Who does Luke say in verse 1 goes? Everyone, except whom? Except the apostles. Now, why mention that? Why mention that the apostles stay behind? Yes, probably to make sense of the story later because the apostles have to go to Samaria to confirm that what's happening there is truly of God and his doing. But more importantly, especially for us, it's to highlight who it is that's doing the work of ministry in the first place. And it's not the apostles. It's not them. And there's an essay by Tim Keller that I force my staff and my elders to read at least once a year. Uh, each and every year I force them to read. It's called Church Size Dynamics. It's actually, it's a terrible title in so many ways, but it's a far better essay than the title. And in it, Tim Keller says all these very profoundly simple things. Like, for example, in small churches, everyone makes the decisions and a few people do the work. But in large churches, a few people make the decisions and everyone does the work. Everyone does the work. And we're a large church. We're a growing church. So the question is, who's going to do the work of ministry at All Saints? Last week, we had VBS. We had 250 children here on campus. It was beautiful, unbridled, basically controlled ministerial chaos for like five or six days, and it was wonderful. Who's going to do the work like that? Also, especially coming out of COVID, we have so many people who want to be in small groups who are coming to staff like us asking, how can I get into a small group? Youth small groups, young adult small groups, men, women, co-ed, 50 plus small groups. They all want them. And I would say all of us need them. This past week, I saw this Gallup poll. Somebody sent this to me. It was a Gallup poll that recently came out about friendship. It said that in 1990, 40% of men reported having 10 or more friends. 1990, 40% said 10 or more friends. In 2021, that percentage has shrunk down to 15%. One third of American men say that they now have no more than two friends, a third. 10% say that they have no friends at all. What that tells me is that we're increasingly isolated and unknown as a culture. And it's not just men, because 10% of women also say that they report that they have no friends. So 15% of men, 11% of women say that they have 10 or more friends. That's just not very many. And what that tells me also is that we don't live in community anymore as Americans, not like we used to. But the church can help. So who's going to do the work of ministry, which so often is just the work of friendship? Look at verse 4. 
here in verse four, it says, now those who were scattered or sown went about preaching the word. Preaching the word's a little bit of an intimidating word there, and it's not actually the best translation because we hear the word preaching, we think about what I'm doing right now, speaking publicly before a crowd, but that's not the best way to translate this word. Actually, in verse five, it says proclaim. We could better translate that word as preach, but this word in verse four is the word euangelizo. Just trying to impress you with my Greek, euangelizo. But actually from it, we get the word euangelion, which just means good news. We get our word evangel or evangelize from it. And I know that for some of you, that word evangelize can carry all sorts of baggage, but all it's saying is that they told other people about Jesus. Wherever they were, wherever they were sent, wherever that they were scattered, they just told them about him. In other words, they were witnesses where and with whom they were sown not the apostles, not the apostles, not the leaders of the church. In other words, verse four is far more about you than it is about me. I'm not an apostle. Those don't exist anymore. But I and the other pastors, we, we lead the church. We're the professional Christians, so to speak. We're the clergy. It's not about us. It's about you. And what it's telling you is that you, if you are a Christian, you are sown wherever you are, and with whomever you currently find yourself, however good or bad it may be, however good or bad the relationships, however good or bad the circumstances might be, you are sown into the soil of that place and into the lives of people around you that you might minister to them. Your witnesses, in other words. And remember what I've told you throughout this series, a witness is not just someone who speaks about Jesus, a witness is someone who makes Jesus present on earth as he is in heaven, in word and in deed, you are scattered witnesses. So have you been scattered by this world? Better yet, how have you been scattered? Some of you have been scattered through very difficult things, like divorce, or maybe a job that you lost, another job that you didn't wanna take, or a move that you didn't wanna take, a move that you never imagined taking, or maybe a pregnancy that you didn't plan on or maybe a diagnosis that you never imagined for yourself or for a loved one or for the death of a loved one that you had to move someplace in order to take care of someone who is sick, someone who is dying, or maybe a bad choice or a bad decision that scattered your reputation, threw it to the wind with gossip and slander being the result. Whatever it is, some of you have been roughly thrown about and run off by this world and the powers of the world, but here you are, here you now are. And so are those around you hearing and seeing Jesus through you in your scattering? Because Jesus uses the world scattering to sow us into the soil of this world and the soil of others' lives, people that we would never otherwise be around. And it tells us the gospel requires this. The gospel requires scattering. So embrace your scattering. Embrace it. Second point what the gospel does. That's what the gospel requires. Now what the gospel does. First of all, it makes people pay attention. That's what is literally said there in verse six. The crowds with one accord paid attention. But why did they pay attention? Do you notice why they paid attention? It wasn't simply because of what they heard. The end of verse six says it's not only because of what they heard, but also what they saw. They saw signs. They saw the signs that Peter did, and that's what made them pay attention to what he was saying. Some of you are wondering, okay, are we about to become a charismatic church right now? We're not about to become a charismatic church. But 
Don't get tripped up on the miraculous and the miraculous nature of what Philip does. Of course, miracles accompanied what happened here at this event, because this event is of massive importance. It's of significant historical importance because this is the first time in the history of redemption, in the history of the scriptures, where the insiders of God's people, where God's people are sent out by the God of Israel to those outside of their midst. The very first time. Up until this point, always the outsiders of God's people were having to come into them. Now, for the first time, they're sent out. Our gospel reading is one of the last episodes, one of the last events where the outsiders come in. These Greeks come into Jerusalem, into the feast. They've come into Judaism. They've they've become converts, and they come to the disciples, and they say, sir, we want to see Jesus. But here, they're going out to the outsiders, so it shouldn't surprise us the miraculous accompanies this. Just like the miraculous accompanied Jesus when God sent him out and scattered him here on earth to come to outsiders like us. But the miraculous isn't the point. The point here is the help that's given. It wasn't just a ministry of word. It was ministry of the word. Philip proclaimed, he preached, but it was also a ministry of deed. Verse seven, it says, unclean spirits were cast out and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So the church here in its first foreign missionary endeavor, helps spiritually, casts out evil spirits, but also meets vital, essential, physical needs because that's the scope of the gospel. That's the scope. That's the breadth. How many times have you heard us say at All Saints, quote Jesus in the book of Revelation saying, behold, I'm making what? All things new. All things new. Friends, listen to me here. If, if the city of Austin sees us just gathering as a church and meeting our own needs, just meeting our own spiritual and emotional and intellectual needs, but not any of the physical needs of those outside us, because let's be honest, we as a church don't have that many physical needs. If the church just sees us gathering to meet our own needs as insiders not moving out, then they will not listen. They will not pay attention if they don't see us pouring out ourselves for the physical, financial needs of the poor, the vulnerable in our city, they'll just see what we're doing here as a power play trying to protect ourselves. And that's it. And they won't pay attention. But if they see us doing what Jesus said that he was doing, which is making all things new for all people with a particular eye to the poor and the vulnerable and going out to them long before we ask them to come into us, then they'll pay attention. They'll listen. At the very least, they'll rejoice. Do you notice that? Do you catch that in verse eight? Who rejoices? Is it the, the Jewish Christians who went out to Samaria, do they rejoice? Or is it the, the Samaritan people who heard Philip and then they become Christians and they begin to rejoice? Who does it say rejoices? The city. The city rejoices. There was much joy in the city. The whole city rejoiced when these Christians moved out and into the lives of this community because they, like Jesus and with Jesus, were seeking to make all things new. Everything physical, financial, emotional, legal, political, relational, and racial even. Because the way that Philip's word gets fleshed out is also through racial reconciliation. Now, where does the text say that? Where does the text speak about that? The entire text speaks about it. Because verse five tells us that it's to Samaria that Philip goes. The Jews hated Samaritans. 
and the Samaritans hated the Jews. In fact, it was a common curse word among the Jews to call someone a, a Samaritan, very similar to our, many of our racial slurs today. In John chapter eight, Jesus is in an argument with some Jewish leaders, and he tells them, your father is the devil, not a way to make friends and influence people. Your father is the devil. And then what do they call him? Samaritan, you're Samaritan. It was the worst insult that they could think of because Samaritans in the, in the mind of Jews at the time, many of them were half-breeds, ethnically mixed and impure because while the Jewish nation hundreds of years before was carried off into exile in Babylon, many, some of the Jews stayed behind. They intermarried with the pagans around them and then when the Jews returned from Babylon, they found the Samaritans there, this, this new people living in their land and they hated them, hated them. Is there anyone that you hate? Is there any group of people that you hate? Be honest. Anyone that you disdain, that you dismiss, that you avoid, any group. Because the Jews hated them. They hated their ethnicity. Jews were raised, many of Jews at the time were raised to think that Samaritans defiled them if they were around them, made them ceremoniously unclean. And mutual acts of violence between both groups was the result. Not unlike the violence that we've seen in the course of our history of our nation between white Americans and black Americans. Very similar on many levels. And Philip goes to them. He goes to them. He preaches to them. He touches them. He heals them. He, he loves them. He welcomes them as members of a new community, of a new human race that knows no ethnic boundaries. I don't know if, if we can appreciate how shocking this would have been, how scandalous this would have been to Philip's family, to Philip's friends, to others, how in, unimaginably and entirely new, but that's the point. That is the point. The point is that when the gospel breaks down insurmountable barriers like racial hatred and makes friends of people that otherwise would never have been friends before, the world pays attention. The world pays attention and even rejoices, just like Proverbs 11.10 says, that when the righteous flourish, when they live as they are, when they live out who they are, when the righteous flourishes, the city rejoices. It's a blessing to all people. And so does Austin rejoice over us? Does our city rejoice over us? Over, over what we do? do? Do outsiders rejoice over us? Do they look at us and do they say, I don't believe what they believe, but I'm thankful that they're here. And, and I'll actually even pay attention to what they're saying because of how they live. Do our, does our city say this about us? Because I, the rest of our leadership, we, we truly hope and we're truly working toward that. That's why we have ESL. That's why we've led an ESL ministry for the past several years. That's why this fall, Side by Side Kids, which is an after-school program uh, for, for children who are in need, they're going to be here on our campus. At least 50 kids from Oak Hill Elementary will bust here five days a week, will be here until their, their parents can come here and pick them up after they get off work tutoring them, discipling them, feeding them, giving them a safe place to play. That's why this past week our session upped our missions budget to $225,000 this year, upped it by two hundred twenty-five dollars to $750,000 this next year. Almost 20% of our budget will go out the door to our ministry partners, all these, these different ministries who are seeking to do word and deed ministry, like International Justice Mission, or Texas Reach Out to Former Prisoners, or the Source Pregnancy Center, 
It's why I'm having all sorts of conversation with Latino pastors from across the United States trying to bring a Latino pastor on our pastoral staff to better help us minister to the growing Latino population here in Austin and even our down-the-street neighbors because that's what the gospel does. It breaks down barriers that the world can never overcome and it offers a joy that the world does not know. So that's what the gospel does. And here's where I close. Here's what it is, what the gospel is. For any and all of this to happen, everything that we've read about, we've got to be amazed. For us to become a people like we read of here, we have got to be a people who are amazed by God's power and by God's grace. That word amazed here shows up throughout our passage, threaded throughout. In verse 9, it shows up, then it's repeated in verse 11 and verse 13. We find it again, and we read that Simon the Samaritan, this magician, he amazed people with his magic. At the end of verse 9, it actually says that he himself, because of all that he could do, said that he was somebody great. And friends, that is the best that this world can offer you. It's the absolute best that this world can offer you, to be someone who is able to temporarily tell yourself that others think that you're great that others think that you're a person of significance or consequence because of what you do or what you've produced or how wealthy you are or well-known you are. That is the best that the world can offer. That is actually what the world demands of you. Every other faith, every other philosophy, every system of self-help says, amaze them and they'll love you. Amaze them, they will love you. Be this, do this, do that, and you will escape from all of your self-doubt and your self-loathing and your insecurity, your anxiety, your, your guilt, your shame, your poverty, your loneliness. Amaze me, and I'll love you. I'll love you until someone more amazing comes along, and then I'll discard you. Then I'll forget about you and discard you. And some of you have known that. Some of you this morning are here, and you know that acutely because that's happened to you. Someone more amazing came along, and whether it was your lover or your spouse, they forgot about you. They discarded you. Or maybe it's happened with a friend or a group of friends, or maybe it's happened in your job. Someone with more worldly amazement showed up, and you got dropped, and you were discarded. That happens to Simon here. And, and he, he, he no longer is the most amazing thing in town, and he offers Peter all the money that he has in order to get it back. He can't take it to no longer be amazing. And Peter sees right through him. He knows that Simon is not in any way interested in God. What he's really interested in is using God in order to get back to being someone significant and amazing in the eyes of this world. And Peter's response to him is basically to hell with you and your money. It's basically his response. Because the gospel is not amaze me and you'll be loved. It's not amaze me and you'll be accepted. The gospel is that God loves you for who you are and for what you are. His image bearer, yes, broken by sin and damaged and damaging to other in many ways, he knows all of that. He knows everything good, bad, and otherwise, all the depths, all of the darkness, all your sin faults, all your failures, all your rejections, all the rejections that you've known, he knows it all and he loves you. And he sent Jesus to be your Christ, your savior and your Lord. He, he scattered Jesus. He scattered Jesus like a seed sown into the soil of this world, sown into this world to be crucified under the penalty of our sin. He sent him into the ground, having been broken open like a seed in order that his life might spill out into us. 
and that we might have a share in his life, his very life, as a gift. That's what Peter calls it. It's a gift, something that can't be earned. It can't be gained. It can't be achieved. It has to be bestowed, a gift to be bestowed upon unamazing people, a gift to us of forgiveness and acceptance and freedom and joy and holiness bestowed upon unamazing, unwanted, unclean, outsider people. Christians are not amazing people. They're not amazing people. They are people who are amazed of the gift of God to them in Christ. And friends, that is the gospel. So go out today in amazement amazed at all that you have been given and break your life open like a seed sown into the soil of those around you because that's what's been done for you by God. And let others hear and see of Jesus through you in order that they too might be amazed. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray this morning that you, as we pray each and every week, that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we might know you, that we might know of your gospel, that we might hear of it and that we might see of it in our midst and that others might hear and see of you in our midst as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.